This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. I've been thinking over the last couple of weeks and definitely during this week of Shugen Roshi and Hojin Sensei and our Sangha brothers and sisters who went on this uh, pilgrimage to India. And as I was reflecting on this talk, I thought it would be nice to somehow bring, bring that trip into Sushin um, by speaking about pilgrimage. And because we've also been studying Buddha ancestors during the Sangha, I particularly wanted to look at the Buddha's journey, which led, of course, very con- concretely to us sitting here today, practicing his, his Dharma. We can think of pilgrimage in terms of six steps that, although, um, you know, as I speak of them, may seem distinct from one another, they also form a continuum like the ox herding pictures that we have downstairs, it's um, um, an expedient uh, representation of what a, what a spiritual journey can look like. And it can seem, because of the way they're, they're laid out, it can seem as if it is linear, and if it's a progression, as if it's a progression where you start in a particular way and very neatly move through these stages and um, although it's not, that is not true, it, um, a path, certainly a path like this, is not linear. And you know, because we have to use words um, that, that limits the um, representation somehow, but um, I really think of, of pilgrimage, whether it's a, uh, an actual, a physical voyage, or, or an inner journey as um, more as a, as a um, not sure what the image is that I have in mind, but that it, it keeps extending as you take each step, it keeps um, extending farther and farther out from your being, so that it really, at a certain point, uh, it extends in all directions. It always extends in all directions, but more and more you know that. You're aware of that. So the, the first step is the call. It is that first stirring, that first recognized yearning for something other than what we've been experiencing all along. And sometimes it manifests as a feeling of, of unease or dissatisfaction with our current life, our current circumstances. Or sometimes it's more a, a, a drawing out uh, or, or drawing towards. We're drawn towards something other, something that we see. For example, a religious life. I think, you know, in my case, long before I, I consciously thought of the possibility of living a religious life, uh, growing up in Mexico where uh, really every corner, there's a church, and uh, there's so many monasteries and um, convents, temples, 
many of which have been now converted into other things, hotels and museums, because they're not being used in the way that they were hundreds of years ago. But the, the structures still remain. And I remember from a very early age being in these spaces and feeling a very powerful draw, imagining what life would be like uh, moving from these little cells to the courtyard, to the uh, chapel, back to my little cell. And um, I think it was this, this pull towards wanting to explore things that I couldn't quite see, but I could feel. And it, it felt, as I thought about it a little bit more as I, as I grew up, it felt that it was at least the possibility of a life that was connected to something very fundamental. Much later, I, I read Merton saying that, um, you know, you're a monk if your first thought upon waking up, opening your eyes, is of God. Uh, we could say for us, if, if your first thought is your aspiration. And Tibetan teachers speak of the, the very much the practice of making that your first thought as you open your eyes in the morning and then as you are about to go to bed at night to give rise to it again. So that is your last thought as you drift off into sleep. And for the Buddha, that first stirring, at least as far as we know, as far as it's described, was when, when he was nine years old um, and he very naturally uh, experience a, a state of contemplation, if you will. Although, perhaps, you know, even before that, with the story of his birth and the prophecy that was made about his life, and like the stories, the birth stories of so many great uh, figures, especially religious figures, there's, there's a lot of myth that surrounds it, but it's still... It's, um, well, with it, with the, with the myth, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful story. And it's said that his mother, Queen Mahamaya, had a dream that a six-tusked white elephant came to her, danced with her, and offered her a pink lotus flower. And that when, upon receiving it, that she was filled with such bliss that she felt that she would never again know pain or suffering or worry. And the next morning, she told her husband, the king, of her dream, and he summoned the wise people, the wise seers of his court, and they declared unanimously that Siddhartha, whose name means the one who accomplishes his aim, would, right from the beginning, he would become a great ruler. And he would either be a ruler of men, he would be a king like his father, or perhaps even an emperor, or he would be a great spiritual teacher a holder of truth, they said. And months later, when Queen Mahamaya was traveling back to her parents at Lumbini, no, in Kaliya, she was uh, crossing through Lumbini, uh, as was tradition, she would return to her parents' home to give birth. And she was um, traveling through a forest where she all of a sudden felt you know, the, the um, pangs, the contractions, of, of birth, childbirth, and she grabbed a branch that was just above her of an Ashok tree that was in full bloom. And it said that very effortlessly she gave birth to Siddhartha. 
And one version of the story says that he actually came out of her side and was a full-grown child. And uh, that, that story of him pointing to heaven and to earth and saying, I alone am the honored one comes from, from that. And it actually is one of our miscellaneous uh, koans. And I remember the first time I, I heard that, I thought, well, that's, that's some chutzpah. You know, I alone am <laughs> the honored one. Um, I was very struck by it. That, that Would somebody actually really say that? Um, and then, you know, with time, I realized it wasn't, you know, he wasn't tooting his, his horn. What, what was he actually saying? I alone, first of all, I alone stand here. I alone am the honored one between heaven and earth. And the thing is, each one of us could say that, and it would be true. And so right from that, that um, really, from, from the beginning, he was, uh, he was stating the truth of things. He was, he was um, referring to himself as the one who is holy, as the one who is whole, as Gokan was referring to the other day, who is nothing but the universe itself. And then some years later, it was a, a spring festival, and it was the first time that he was actually witnessing it. And um, all of the members of the Shakya clan would, would participate in the festival. And, you know, this, it was a big thing. Everybody was, best, was dressed in their royal best, and there were flags waving and uh, cornucopia of food and music and uh, just joyful celebration of that first moment in which the the fields would get turned in preparation for the planting. And uh, the holy men, the, the Brahmins, were chanting the Vedas. And um, at one point, uh, Siddhartha asked his father about it, and, and he basically said something like, this is, this is how they hallow this occasion. You know, all the way from, from the beginning of time, if you will, there's, there's the marking of these... Um, important occasions, and these, these hymns are both a celebration of life, they're also used for protection, to um, encourage the crops, etc. And at first, you know, Siddhartha was really fascinated by all the sounds and the smells and the, the colors, and you know, he was a child, he was really excited about it, but the chance kept going, you know, on and on, and he started to get hot, and he started to get tired, and at one point, he just he went off on his own and saw, the story says, a rose apple tree, and he decided that he would sit in its, in its shade. And so he sat down, and he, he crossed his legs, he straightened his back, and at first he was just, just uh, gazing at the, at the activity, and he watched as his father stepped forth and began to turn the first row in one of the fields, and then all his his subjects joined him and began to, to prepare the field. And Siddhartha just sat there quietly, and he was watching as the, there was a, a water buffalo pulling a very heavy plow, and the, and the water buffalo was straining. And then he saw you know, the, 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 back, the bent backs of the men and the women moving along the rows, and the sweat pouring down their faces, and the whips that the farmers had to use um, to... Um, keep the water buffalo moving. And then he saw that um, as they were turning the earth with a, with a hose, that um, worms were getting cut into, were being killed. And then he saw a falcon swoop down on a mouse and grab it on its talons and, 
and take it away to be eaten. And so, so the, you could say the picture changed for him. All of a sudden, what he was seeing was not the color and the gaiety and the celebration, but he was seeing the pain and the suffering and the toil and the work that all of this involved. And so now he lowered his eyes and he looked inward. And he very naturally, as it said, uh, went into a state, entered into a state of samadhi. And where he at first wondered, is this the way of all things? Is this kind of pain and suffering the way it is? And he also understood, with an understanding much older than his years, that no matter how long the priests chanted, this would not alleviate the suffering of all of these creatures, the humans included. And many years later, he would remember this day, and he would turn toward that call again, this time for good, for the good of everyone, you could say. The second step of of a pilgrimage is home-leaving, and it is uh, very much a a separation from the known. In our tradition, home-leaving refers specifically to those who leave worldly life in order to, to become monastics, at that time, first to become ascetics. But we could also apply it to all of us who turn to whatever degree to um, or from the things that have occupied us in order to go searching for a path, some way of understanding that will show us how to actually live what can seem like a very fraught human life. So it's that, it's that moment of turning. Right? So whether it's a physical home leaving, it, is, it, it, it must, it must include an inward turning. And I would say that probably the turning, the inner turning happens first. And so that, that turning needs to happen um, before you step forth. That, the, that stepping forth is really just a manifestation of that turning. And it is a kind of uh, turning of the tide. And I think for a while, it feels like um, swimming upstream because no home leaving is easy. We are nesting creatures. We like comfort and familiarity, especially as we get older. We don't like uncertainty, which is very much a part of any voyage. And so not knowing where we're going to step or whether there will be ground there to meet us when we do, can be terrifying, can be very unsettling. There's a a traditional Gaelic blessing that Christian pilgrims uh, use, offer each other when they meet each other on the road. It says, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and the rains fall soft upon your fields. To, to meet, to counter that uncertainty in vocation of good fortune, of blessing, of good circumstances. And still, still that uncertainty is part of any journey. It has to be. If it was all mapped out from the beginning, it isn't really, it wouldn't be a true journey. It's more like transportation. 
And so when we start on the path, we can't possibly know where it will lead. And so we're very much walking on the faith that the ground will rise to meet us. And that if we fall on the ground, we'll use that very ground to get up, as one of our koans says. And we don't know that. We actually don't know that consciously. But I think some part of us trusts, and perhaps because we see, you know, we look around us, we see others who are walking the path, or we read about others who've done it, that we trust that it can, in fact, be done. There's a famous poem by um, Antonio Machado that was, um, it's been set into song, and uh, it, it speaks to this. Wayfarer, there's no path. The path is made by walking. Wayfarer, there's no path, but wakes on the water. I can, I can actually, I hear that. Um, my, my parents used to play this song, so I hear um, Juan Manuel Serrat, I hear his, his voice, and the, it's a very particular, it's hard to describe, it's a very particular feeling that it invokes. Um, it's a short poem, but it's, and I didn't read all of it, and it's, um, it has this, this sense of, of uncertainty and of uh, fragility, that the path is not at all solid. It is more like wakes, trails that are left on the water. And, and there's at the same time a bitter sweetness to it and a sense of, of um, adventure, but not... Um, it's not adventure. It's more like maybe like discovery of, of being drawn or being pulled by something mysterious and frightening and yet compelling, so compelling that you can't turn away. And it reminded me of a, of a story that I've told before, really of the, of the image that I carry with me. The, the story is um, by Ursula Le Guin, and it's the end of the world. And you don't know why. It's, it's not explained. Um, in a, what seems like a uh, pre-industrial society. And everyone in this world is dealing with it differently. There are the, um, I couldn't remember the name, they're not ravers, but they're the ones who basically decide to destroy everything because it's the end of the world, so you might as well have fun, I guess, um, till you get there. And then they're the ones who are, I think is the whalers, uh, who shut themselves uh, up in a, some kind of church or temple and are just chanting, waiting for the end of the, the world. And this man is a bricklayer by trade. And he, for whatever reason, um, as he, he, his place is by the ocean, and he often will look out into the horizon. He can't see them, but he has this conviction that there are these islands beyond the range of his sight, and that that is where he has to go before the world ends. And so he decides he's going to make a path to them. And because he's a bricklayer, the only way he knows how to do this is to... At first, he actually he tries to make a boat with bricks. <laughs> and so it sinks <laughs> immediately. And so he says, okay, well, then I'll do the only thing. And he doesn't know how to swim. He doesn't know how to swim. But he decides he's going to do the only thing he knows how to do. So he starts uh, making bricks, and he starts making mortar. And he has to do it in secret, because if anybody else sees, if the ravers see that he's making anything, they will destroy it. 
and they will probably kill him. And so when they pass by, he just tells them that he's throwing them all, all the bricks into the ocean. He's getting rid of them. And they very much approve of this plan. And so once the, the coast is clear, he begins to lay down this, this road on the sand in the water and teaches himself how to swim, how to float and um, flip and how to carry the, the strangely weightless, weightless bricks um, into, the, into the ocean and how to, he, he gets two um, metal rods and, and packs them, packs the, the bricks with the mortar and basically starts laying down this, this road until it goes, you know, goes deeper and deeper until he reaches a point where he can't, um, now he has to dive and, um, and you know, the, the, the wind is, you know, in his face and he has salt all over his body, you know, his, his whole body is raw from it. And he's still, he's convinced that this is what he needs to do. And he knows that if anybody knew what he was doing, they would think he was insane. He was crazy. But he continues until he runs out of bricks. And now he's standing at the edge of the, the uh, sea, and he has about 120 feet of path. And so he decides he's going to walk it. And so he slowly makes his way in, and he's going farther and farther and farther in until he gets to the, to the very edge, and he can just barely you know, keep his nose just above the water so he can still breathe. And now there's no more road. And so he stops there for a moment. He, he considers his options, if you will. And then he decides, he knows what's behind him, because he's been there. And now, the way things are, it's not much of an option anymore. He has absolutely no idea what will happen, you know, as if he steps forward. And he knows he has no choice. So he does. And I won't tell you the end of the story. <laughs> you can look it up. <laughs> this is what it means to take refuge. This is how we make a path through walking it. And I've added, you know, I've actually added to that image myself that um, when you're on a path like this, when you're on a spiritual path, actually you never run out of bricks, they're in your pockets. <laughs> and and you, the more you walk, the more you know how to make them and how to pull them and how to lay them out in just the right way. And sometimes you do get confused and you kind of veer off. Uh, sometimes you, it does feel like you've run out of material. But you haven't. And more and more you know that. So you actually never run out of road. The third step is the journey itself, which always involves some kind of striving. It's the traveling itself, the wearing down of sandals, it's called in Zen. And that searching and striving and falling and getting up again, striving again. You know, I don't think it's that it has to be difficult, but I think just because of how we're wired as human beings, maybe that's, that's what we have to go through. But I think what, it happens, what happens is that it does require a kind of wearing down of the self. So maybe that's the striving. A kind of surrender to the road and to the traveling. And really, when you, when you look at any pilgrimage, 
when, when you read descriptions or if you've done any kind of pilgrimage yourself, you know you have to, as you, as you go to bed at night, there's the tiredness, the achiness in your bones, maybe from all the prostrations, the blisters on your feet, the, the chant or the prayer or the mantra that you've been repeating and repeating and repeating, the calluses. There is that. There is that in this, in this kind of traveling. And, um, you know, I thought immediately of, of the pilgrimage that to this day people make to the Basilica of Guadalupe in Mexico City. Uh, you'll see people on the road. Um, we have a house a couple hundred miles from Mexico City. And so as, as December 12th is approaching, you'll see caravans of people walking hundreds of miles to Mexico City. And then as they get closer, when they're maybe, I think, maybe a mile or two away, the, the old guard, the old women, um, uh, will fall down on their knees and approach to the last couple of miles on their knees <coughs> as homage, as prayer, as surrender. The Buddha himself as we know, left home and spent six years doing very severe ascetic practices. And the sutras describe them in in actually great, great detail. I I, I won't go into them, but but he he would ask himself at different points, what if I become absorbed in the trance of non-breathing? What if I practice going altogether without food? What if I just eat a a, a tiny amount, a handful at a time, until he was eating just a, a sesame seed? And at one point it says that he was um, really on the brink of death and uh, the divas who were protecting him, I suppose, were infusing this kind of ambrosia through his pores so that he wouldn't die, they wouldn't let him die. And he was kind of trying to fight them. <laughs> and they wouldn't, they wouldn't let him be. Um, and, you know, and it describes his, his body racked. You know, the, the, it was so so thin that uh, I think one of the descriptions says if he pressed in his belly button, he could feel his spine. There's that image of that very famous um, uh, statue of him. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really, it's a skeleton. And, and one of the descriptions says it was like, a, like the hull of a boat, you know, with the, I forget how you call the, the beams that go across. He was trying he was trying to see what lay beyond the senses, beyond the world of form. And it was, of course, very much the practice of his time. Asceticism is, is, uh, has been part of many, if not all, I don't know about all, but many of the world's religious traditions. A, a, a practice, a very deliberate, active practice of renunciation, especially of sensual pleasure. For the purpose of unity, of merging, of realization. But I think it does come from the recognition that we have to be willing to give something up. We have to be willing to surrender this body and mind. And that is why that first instance, I think, of letting go, of truly letting go of the self, is so difficult. Because the self does not want to be forgotten, and it will do anything, anything it can, to not let you forget it. I've, I've, I've spoken of this before, you know, that moment where you're really getting close. You feel yourself getting closer to that stillness, that silence. Perhaps you're not quite feeling your body in the way that you usually do. 
and your body freaks out. It jerks. It brings you back. Or your mind freaks out. You start thinking, you know, songs, conversations. And I've always felt that so much of, of, of that is, is you, have to, um, you have to get yourself to that edge enough times. You have to get used to that fear and that anxiety, and you have to keep telling yourself and trusting that you can, in fact, take that step. You know, those of you working on Mu, you can't see it as long as you have it before you. That is what is, what is so challenging, it really is that first turning, that first time that you begin to really see differently. You know, as long as you're trying and you're planning and you're anticipating, you can't see it. You have to be willing to be suffused by it, taken over by it completely, which, of course, demands a profound letting go. So let me offer you another image, which I've also um, spoken of in the past of a sailor. His name was Frank Mulville. And uh, sometime in the early 70s, he was doing a, a transatlantic voyage. And it was just him in his boat, Iskra. And um, at one point, he describes a kind, of, a kind of samadhi, a kind of merging, where he's really feeling he really is one with the ocean and the breeze, the seagulls overhead, his boat. It very much is, he feels it as part of him. And he thinks to himself, wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to look at her, his boat, from a distance, to, to be able to regard her in this way? Because, of course, he's been you know, on the boat for, at this point, I think, several weeks. So this, he decides he's going to do that. So he ties a rope around his waist, and he lowers himself into the water and lets himself just drift off. And so he's, you know, I don't know, probably a couple hundred feet from the boat. And now he's just floating. He's suspended in this ocean, clear sky. And he's looking at, at this beautiful boat. He says he's never seen anything so beautiful. And he thinks to himself, well, I could just let go. I could just let go, and it would be perfect. So he unties the rope from his waist And now he's just holding it with one hand. And he kind of extends his hand a little bit. So he's as far as he can go. And he is this close to letting go. He comes back to himself, realizes what he was about to do, and immediately starts pulling himself in, (laughs) climbs up onto the boat, you know, panting, terrified, and never goes into the water again. But that moment, that moment, I feel, is the moment that every seeker has to face at some point and pass through. We, we actually do have to be willing to let go of that rope, which is death. He knew that. He knew he would die if he did that, and that there was a part of him that was okay, perfectly okay with doing that. For us, it is still death. It's a kind of death, but it's not what we think it is. And so we have to get to that point. We have to slowly train ourselves to move the rope maybe from our waist to our shoulders, you know, maybe um, hold it with both hands, then hold it with one hand, 
until you reach that moment where you have no choice but to let go and just give yourself over to that ocean. There is no other way. And at a certain point, the Buddha knew that the way he was doing this, that through these ascetic practices, that that wasn't going to happen. He realized after going to the brink of death and farther than most of us would ever dare to go, that he wasn't actually closer to accomplishing his aim. And so he remembered. The story says he took food. Sujata offered him some, some rice porridge, and he took food. And he remembered that day so long ago when he had sat under that rose apple tree and he asked himself, could that be the path to awakening? And he says, yes, I think that is the path to awakening. And so he goes searching. He goes searching for a place to do the work of contemplation, which is the fourth step on the journey. In search of what is wholesome, Seeking the supreme state of sublime peace, I wandered by stages in the Magadan country until eventually I arrived at Uruvela. There I saw an agreeable piece of ground, a delightful grove with a clear flowing river with pleasant, smooth banks, and a nearby village for almsgoing. And the thought occurred to me this will serve for the striving of a seeker intent on striving. And I sat down there thinking this will serve for striving. So he found his seat. He turned to his own body. He turned to his mind. And he vowed to not get up until he realized himself. And it's interesting, you know, that, that the, the word, the verb contemplate, means to gaze attentively, to observe and to consider. But originally, it, was, it, it actually meant marking out the space for observation, for the augurs that would foretell the future in Rome, and that the word temple came from that, from that space. And so think of that as you take your seat, that you're marking your space of observation. You're retiring into the temple of your body and mind in order to observe closely. I wonder how many of us think of that first instruction in Zazen as that life-changing moment. Even if we hate it, even if we decide we never want to do it again, even if in that instant it doesn't feel like freedom, it feels more like a tightening than an opening, more like noise than silence. But the fact is, is that in that first turning to the breath, the whole path is included. And we can choose to walk it or we can choose to turn away. In that, and in that, that moment where the Buddha realized himself and said, all sentient beings and I and this great earth have at once entered the way. That's included in that first turning to the breath. I alone am the honored one is included in that first turning to the breath. Because that breath can, in fact, hold everything. That's the, that's the power of the breath body. Inhale, pause, exhale, pause. That's the body or the, the breath filling the whole body. That is why the Buddha called the breath the gateway to nirvana. That is why he would spend time in seclusion, practicing mindfulness of breathing. 
And so there's a, an interesting, I think, an interesting dichotomy between the first and fourth steps of the path, because there's the striving, the doing, the effort. And then there's, in contemplation, the, the resting, the, the, um, the resting, the gathering in of everything. When we need to stop doing, as I said the other night, and to just be, which sounds like it should be easy, and yet it's so incredibly, incredibly challenging. And I, I found that very challenging when I first started uh, doing shikantasa in earnest, because it was nothing to do. And I didn't like that. <laughs> it's, which is not entirely true. I mean, you are, you're aware. It's not, you're not just sitting there. Um, you know, there there's a, an awareness, a crispness. But, it, but it's very spacious. It's not contrived. And it is very much a practice of not doing, of resting in that wholeness. And I've been reading this book on the Sabbath that someone lent me. And um, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel speaks really of this, of the importance of taking time to be with oneself without doing. He says, those who, who want to enter the holiness of the day must first lay down the profanity of clattering commerce, of being yoked to toil. They must go away from the screech of dissonant days, from the nervousness and fury of acquisitiveness and the betrayal in embezzling their own lives. Six days a week, we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the seventh, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. When it's some strong words he uses, <laughs> but I think not inaccurate. I mean, you think of the nervousness, the fury of that acquisitiveness, of doing and getting done. The clatter of our minds, the clatter in the world. And he's saying, we have to be willing to stop this. We have to be willing to stop wrestling so we can take care of our souls, of our spirit, so we can take the next step, which is the encounter, which is that moment that we let go of the rope, that leap into the unknown, that, that um, trust that if you step, the islands will be there. And you can't fabricate that. You can't force it. I think you can really only inch your way towards letting go of that rope, towards taking that step. You can only get yourself used to the feel of that ocean water and the cries of the seagulls and that constriction in your, in your chest as you feel all of that space. You have to get yourself used to it. You coax yourself slowly, slowly into opening until one day you let go. That moment in which the Buddha saw the morning star. And right before, as we know, this, the story of Mara sending all of the sensual pleasures, sending the army, the armies with a ten-eyed tiger face, many-armed uh, beings with faces in their chest, sharp yellow teeth, blood-dripping mouths, anything, the, the fear, the anxiety, the, the terror, anything to unseat the Buddha-to-be. And they couldn't. And so then Mara himself comes forward, and he gets very close to the Buddha, and he stares him in the face and says, who do you think you are to become enlightened? What in the world makes you think you can do this? It has never been done before. 
And the Buddha just touched the earth with his hand, Jesus spoke of this yesterday, and asked her to witness for him. And this the earth did. And everything shook and trembled, and Mara and his army were forced to flee, and then the Buddha was left alone with the morning star. Until he roared his lion's roar, all sentient beings, this great earth and I have at once entered the way. And it was true. In, the, in that moment, the truth that was always present was revealed. And the last and sixth step is the completion and return. Coming down off the mountain back into the world. That Hiroshi used to, to um, call it entering the marketplace without having left the mountain. This is where you return in order to report what you've seen in order to offer yourself in service to others, which the Buddha did for 40 years, teaching, leading his Sangha, allowing his teachings to be handed down, to continue to be handed down until now. And we can think, well, you know, that was a long time ago, and that was the Buddha. That's the archetypal spiritual journey where wisdom triumphs over delusion, where the Buddha persevered, unwavering, in the face of every obstacle, every distraction, every doubt that Mara presented him with. And it really is too bad that we don't hear about the Buddha failing, or doubting himself, or being a jerk to one of his monks, you know, because <laughs> he was in a bad mood, he woke up in a bad mood one day, and he was tired. And I'm sure there must have been those stories, right? There must have. It's too bad that we don't have them. Sean said that you know, when we did the, uh, the Buddhist study on the Jataka tales, like, wouldn't it be nice to hear about those stories when the Buddha did not succeed? He gave a teaching and the person did not get it. <laughs> did not become an arhat. <laughs> did not turn and prostrate himself and ask to be um, admitted into the Sangha. What would have happened then? And I said, I will write those stories. <laughs> so maybe I, I will. <laughs> Just to explore, you know, what, what, what would it be like to hear about the Buddha's humanity? But the fact is, you know, really ultimately that these archetypal moments in the Buddha's life, in any spiritual life, in any pilgrimage, these archetypal, sometimes very powerful stories we hear in the koans of people breaking through, they're not myths. You know, they may not manifest so dramatically in our own lives. There may not be any thunder and lightning. But instead, it's more like I was saying to someone, like your, your I think it was Suzuki Roshi, who said, it's more like you're walking out in a field in the fog. And you're, you're out for an hour or two. When you come back inside, you realize you're completely drenched. But you didn't feel it when you were out there. I think most of practice is like that for most of us. It's very undramatic, very ordinary. And yet, we become imperceptibly suffused, reluctantly even, (laughs) with just a little more clarity, a little less clinging. So don't wait for the thunder and lightning. We don't actually need it. I mean, it's nice if it comes. <laughs> it's nice if it's there, but we don't actually need it. 
we can turn to this body, we can turn to this mind and meet it fully. Not knowing what we will find because we can't possibly, possibly know it. But being willing, really being willing to discover it. Because that's what a true journey really is. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.